From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. And we continue the discussion that has been opened up by the George Floyd incident, and that is, can you just reform the police department or do you have to reform the entire society? Edwin Lindo has talked about this. He is an instructor at UW Medicine. Why don't you Why don't you just describe what your role is there for everybody, Edwin? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a critical race theory scholar and uh, legally trained, went to law school, but have brought my theory and expertise to medicine because what we found is that medical students, trainees, and physicians need and want the skill to be able to treat not just the illnesses and issues that they see in their patients in the clinics, but what is affecting their patients outside of the clinics. And so I teach about justice, racial theory, racism, oppression, and how that has an undue influence and impact and the disproportionate uh, harm caused to our patients. So what is your own racial background, and how did you come to, to make this your life's work? Yeah, so I, I identify as Central American indigenous. Uh, my family came from the east coast of Nicaragua, um, and... This work is, is personal to me. I grew up in San Francisco, and in San Francisco, uh, five young black and brown men were shot and killed by the police department. Uh, all except one who had a knife were unarmed, and one of them was a neighbor of mine, uh, same age. And I saw how close in proximity, how real and how devastating uh, this type of violence is, and seeing the intersection between state-sanctioned violence seeing the intersectionality of health inequities that take place and seeing how laws and other systems and institutions have used racism as a tool and mechanism to, to again, disproportionately cause harm to communities that at the end of the day just want to live with the liberties and the rights as everyone else, but the society just hasn't allowed that to happen. You also do a podcast called The Praxis, and one of the uh, statements you made was that Black and brown people continue to live in a system that literally kills them. So explain what you mean by that. Yeah, and, and that's a statement that runs deep. It's not just true on on face. It's true in the way that our systems operate on a daily basis. So let's look at COVID-19, for example. COVID-19, many who have seen the news see that there's a disproportionality of both transmission of the disease and mortality on black and brown folks and indigenous Alaska Native folks here in the United States. But that wasn't by accident. Right? That was a creation of a legacy of uh, unemployment, of lack of access to good education, of forced segregation based on racial lines. We take Seattle, for example. Hopefully most people are aware of this history, but in Seattle there was state-sanctioned redlining, which means north of Madison, black folks couldn't buy homes, they couldn't live, and they couldn't operate there. And it wasn't just because people didn't like them. It was entrenched into the mechanisms of law and, and home buying. So if you were to look at a grand deed, I have a colleague who showed me his grand deed in 2020 that had the legacy language that said this home cannot be sold to a Mongol a black or a Jew. Well, that forced segregation, if we look at the map of, of Seattle and King County, most black and brown folks live south of Madison. And also, where do we have the highest rates of respiratory disease? Is south of Madison. And what is one of the leading causes of death if you are to contract COVID-19? Respiratory disease. 
right? So there's a direct link to the racial segregation, the racial violence that will lead you to death and, and these communities having higher rates of chronic illnesses. But that is in the same conversation of trying to survive in a world where young black men, one of the leading causes of death for them is being killed by police. So one in 1,000 young black men will die at the hands of police, which is sad and devastating. Those uh, property deeds, of course, are uh, amazingly frank, <laughs> and right. uh, they make they they pull no punches. They, there was apparently nothing considered wrong at all about herding people into certain uh, neighborhoods. So the question is now: How do you undo the legacy of that? One of the things you brought up was uh, the Georgetown neighborhood, mm-hmm. and that it actually becomes a medical problem. So explain that. Yeah, so we look at Georgetown. The concentration of respiratory disease in King County is is there in Georgetown and slightly further south in White Center. It becomes a a very discreet medical issue because the choices of running I-5 through a poor neighborhood wasn't an accident where you have uh, high levels of manufacturing, big rigs that are driving through, that get to drive through the neighborhoods, and the particulates that are flying out of the trucks into the soil, where the children of our families are playing in the backyard, playing with the dirt, rubbing it on their face, maybe even putting it in their mouth, adding to the respiratory issues. Well, that child who may end up having asthma, which I did, walks into the clinic, and our primary care provider, in their mind, believes that the only thing they can do is provide the prescription for asthma. And so the inhaler is given to them, they go back home and they use it. But we just sent that child right back into the situation that caused them to come into the hospital in the first place. And we're not actually addressing the root cause. I think the way we change the legacy is we look at our policies, we look at our laws, we look at our economy, and we say, why is it the way it is And we can't stand for it anymore, so therefore we have to fundamentally change it. How do we prevent big ricks from driving into these highly dense neighborhoods that are overwhelmingly poor, black, and brown? A prime example I give in the Bay Area is there's two highways in Oakland. One is 880, the other is 580. 580 has a wealthier zip code. 880 doesn't. Much poorer. 880 is the only freeway where big rigs, 16-wheelers, are allowed to drive. 580 has prohibited 16-wheelers from driving onto that freeway. As you can imagine, where respiratory disease ends up finding itself is in the poor black-brown neighborhoods. So medicine can't stand in the silo of its clinic. It has to get out and actually advocate for the better health of of our community. When I uh, heard that point being made by you and your guests, uh, it occurred to me that doctors are empowered to prescribe drugs all the time, right? cure what ails right. But it sounded like what, what you wanted to prescribe was <laughs> either a traffic ban or relocation of, uh, of the patient to an area where uh, he could essentially get over his illness, which could not happen in the place that he's living now. Yeah, I, I think we have to be creative if we're actually trying to serve the patients. Creative to what you just suggested around Maybe it's reallocation to a home that is safe and is a safe environment. But that that would be uprooting a family in a community that may have been there for a while. And so maybe a much more effective solution is providing the resources to clean the neighborhood up, preventing these 16-wheelers from driving through them. 
But it doesn't just settle on the environmental racism that exists with pollution. It actually settles in policing. The number of deaths at the hands of police is so great that it's equal to cystic fibrosis of the number of people who have cystic fibrosis in the United States um, and, and have died from it. Right? If, if we're treating and spending millions of dollars to find the cure for cystic fibrosis, why aren't we spending the millions of dollars to find the cure of something that is lethal and causing a significant amount of death in our community? We don't even put it in the same category. And I guess it's because cystic fibrosis is something that is generated somehow within the body, whereas these are, are external factors that come from the neighborhood, which is not traditionally thought of in, in terms of something that a doctor would treat. Right, right. And, and what I encourage my colleagues, what I teach my students, I teach a course called Critical Race Theory in Medicine. And what, what I try to get us to is that what we should be pathologizing is not just the body. Because what tends to happen in medicine is we pathologize race as well. And medicine has had this very sinister role in the way that we imagine race and has influenced racism. Because the body has been viewed as either normal or abnormal as it comes to race, and medicine has perpetuated that. Well, that's how many people in our society look at people who are of a different race. Oh, they're not the same as me. They're different not just visibly, but they're physically different. There are scientists and physicians who've made the point that black and brown people come from different origins, and they're not of the same origin or species as white people. And granted, this was in the mid-1800s leading into the 19th century, but that was believed for nearly 100 years. So you're saying that you're saying that persists and that people presume that because you're of a certain race, you're going to be susceptible to certain illnesses, and that's just the way life is? Oh, absolutely. I'll give you a prime example. In much of our medical education, if you look at the major chronic illnesses, diabetes, hypertension, high blood pressure, the way it is taught to medical students, it starts off with, here are risk factors for those diseases. Risk factors suggest a pathology, meaning it suggests that if you have one of these risk factors, it will increase your likelihood of having the disease. Well, usually the number one risk factor for those chronic illnesses is race. Typically, it's black and brown folks. And so it will say risk factor, and it will say black. And the question I have is, how is a phenotypical expression of the body, of melanin, the risk factor for a biological disease that is actually influenced and determined by the environment through which those people are experiencing the world? And why isn't racism the risk factor that leads to hypertension, high blood pressure, and a number of the other chronic illnesses. And it's because medicine hasn't wrestled with the reality that racism must be pathologized and must be the risk factor, not the person and their skin color. Uh, that's a good point. So if we were being more rational about this, risk factors would have to include what? Address? Location of housing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, zip code. Zip code. Uh, yep, zip code. Uh, have you experienced racism? Um, it should be, do you have access to health care? It should be, do you have access to good transportation? Do you have a job? I mean, these are, these are things that directly impact whether you will get the care you need to take care of that illness, right? If you have diabetes, if you aren't able to access the care, your diabetes will worsen. But if we put that same analysis on race, it doesn't actually make sense. 
we're saying that oh because you're black you're 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 going to get and they don't say this but the one liner is and this is what my grandma told me when she came back home from the doctor one day and found out she had diabetes she said son you're going to get diabetes because you're latino and and i didn't know what she meant i was 13 years old at the time but there is now a pathologizing of the race to make individuals believe that their body is abnormal and because of their skin color they are inherently going to be more sick and we have to disabuse ourselves of that that truthfully the reason that certain communities of 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 some racial groups are getting more sick is because the way that our society has been treating them so if you were to change this practice well first has anybody done that has anybody instead of using the these traditional at risk categories of which black is always like number 1 on the list instead just use zip code we're getting there. Uh, I think much of medical education is moving in that direction. It's taking some time because we're talking about generations of medical training. Uh, but I think we're getting close. It's going to take a lot of work. I think my goal actually is to get racism on there because racism has such a huge influence on the outcomes. I'll give you some statistics. A white man who didn't graduate from high school has a greater likelihood to live longer than a black man who has a graduate degree by five years. Right? That, that doesn't make sense when we say that, oh, well, it's all economic. I wish it was just economic, but it isn't. The research tells us that black men who live to their mid-50s have potentially levels of PTSD equal to those who fought in the Vietnam War. Just because of the way they've been treated. Just because of the way they've been treated. But then if you do that, you're sort of playing into the same thing that you're talking about before. So now we just associate blackness with, uh, what, a genetic predisposition for PTSD, which I don't think is the impression you want to leave. No, no, no. I'm not making that impression at all. Uh, so race is important in only one instance. Race is important for us to understand the health disparities that exist, which is what I'm describing. I'm describing because someone has, has had to experience the world in a specific way, their physiology is being affected. But that is different than suggesting that someone's race is the biological determinant for a health outcome. But if we assume then that people of a certain race are always going to be confined to certain neighborhoods and certain undesirable environments, it's almost as if they had been born with a, uh, a genetic defect. I mean, how do you... How do you get past that unless you start addressing the actual reasons in the environment? Well, I'll put it this way. If we put all white people through slavery and segregated them into poverty for 300 years, they would have the exact same health outcomes that black right. and brown communities do today. Right, exactly. So, that, yep. so the question stands then. So at this point, given you're not going to be able to change history, uh, what are you going to do about it? You can't just cry racism. You have to do some specific, like like um, if a doctor can prescribe a drug and society pays for it because of uh, health coverage. If a doctor prescribes a different environment, why shouldn't society pay for that if that's what it takes to keep that person healthy? Yeah, absolutely. No, I I, I think we have to fundamentally invest into the solutions that address the core issues. I'm what I'm suggesting though is that the core issues aren't just economic. Right, you yeah. could be a you can be a wealthy black or brown person, and still be mistreated and have a detrimental effect on your health. 
right? That's the sad reality of how, how this society operates. But I, I do think we can address much of the issues if we do four basic things. If folks have good access to health care, if they have good access to an education, that they have a roof over their head, and that we don't have the type of policing that over-criminalizes certain communities to where we have a two million person prison population, we would have a fundamentally different uh, health story that we would be telling. In light of this current movement that's underway, do you think this is different from the other times that this has come up? Because uh, I remember the, the exact same issue. I mean, this happened during the year I went to Cornell, 1969. It was right mm-hmm. after the Willard Strait takeover. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, we went through this whole discussion then and thought, okay, you know, if you had asked me then if it was going to be solved 40 years later, I'd say, of course it is. And yet it's not. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah, I think we are we are in a moment in time that has uh, become a confluence of energy, imagination, and and community power that can see a world that is radically different than the one we currently sit in, uh, which I would argue is the most difficult part of the work, right? People hear defund the police and a question mark in their mind is, well, and then what? Well, what do we do with all the violent people? Um, as I mentioned earlier, 70, in my mind, 75% of crime would disappear because 75% of crime are committed to survive in this society, mm-hmm. whether it's because of poverty, drug addiction, um, or mental health. For the mental health, which I would argue is the 25% of crime, we need to provide experts to get folks the support they need because I think we could address those crimes as well. Uh, it's just our carceral system and our policing was never intended to do what it says it, it, it does. Uh, and the, the brief history of that is that policing is a relatively new innovation. The first police department uh, was chartered in 1838 in Boston, Massachusetts. Right? It's, it's not something that's fundamental to the, the founding of this country, at least for police departments. And its sole purpose was to protect the property of ships owned by major corporations. Uh, but, but to get to the core of your question around where do I think we are, I think we're at an inflection point that will change the course of history. Um, The question I think next is, are our elected officials willing, willing to show the political will to make the change that people are demanding? Um, Because I, I mean, you could talk to people who were black Panthers and talk to people who were um, in the civil rights movement and say, this is what we've been waiting for for a national conversation against racism and police violence, but no one ever thought that it would have to take place in the middle of a pandemic mm-hmm. um, on a global scale. Well, the pandemic is what's given people all the time off to concentrate on this. If people had to go to work every day, this might not be happening. Um, I, yeah, I think you're right. So is anyone anywhere in the world doing this? essentially getting rid of policing as we know it, trusting communities to police themselves for the small stuff. And I assume you'd still want police to concentrate on the the psychopaths who go on murderous rampages through the countryside, right? Yeah, I think we we can find a way to dress people who are are blatantly violent and, and, you know, running around shooting up places. There there could be experts who address that. Uh, Is that police? I don't know, but it could be people who are trained to actually do those things. Um, 
but agreed, yeah, on a community level that we create a, a form of public safety that is much more driven by a sense of humanity and trying to solve the problem of not just the community, but the problem of the individual that, that people are concerned about. Um, and so the question is, are, are places doing this elsewhere? Well, I'll give an example of, of how we can drastically think differently about this. You have indigenous territories where if someone kills someone of another family within the reservation, that that person who committed the act is now indebted financially and otherwise to the other family for three generations. That means they have to support that family. Their kids have to support that family. And the kids of their kids have to support that family. As you can imagine, there isn't much killing going on on that reservation because there is a community accountability that you don't want to be responsible for the harm of the, those individuals in that family, but you don't want to make your family responsible mm. to have to take care of someone or someone else because of your bad choices. Are you really comfortable with that? Where the children and the children's children of the person who committed the crime who had nothing directly to do with it end up being penalized for their lives? That's how community works. We have to be in, we have to be in community. And we can't disassociate ourselves. If, if I didn't believe that, then I wouldn't believe in reparations. Mm. Right? I, I think reparations is along the same logical path, which is many people say, well, I, I, I wasn't a slave owner, so why do, I have to, why do my taxes have to go to reparations? And the truth is, is, it's not that you have to be a slave owner to contribute to this. It's that it's the legacy from which we come from. And if we can't take ownership from that legacy, uh, then what we're really trying to do is absolve ourselves of responsibility. And so what do you say to police officers who find themselves in the middle of all this? And they personally have never abused anybody. Uh, they're just there because they want to be of service to the community. Yeah, and I know them. Uh, I've met them. Um, many of those who I do know actually support the work that I do. And they say, Edwin, please keep going because our police departments are so corrupt. And so to hear that from police officers mm -hmm. is, is both encouraging and also says to us that we are on the right side of history here. But simultaneously, these are workers, right? These are people who, who have to take care of their family. The disappointing part about all of this is that our society has made them believe and made communities believe that their livelihood has to be dependent on policing and incarcerating communities. And I think that's a terrible choice to have to make, to say, well, I need to keep my job, so I need to continue to do this. And, and for those who say, but Edwin, I've, I've never harmed anyone. I'm community-centered. I say, that's, that's great. That means when we reimagine a new policing system, then you seem to fit into that category or a new public safety system. But I would push back and say, if folks were actually that good, then that means I would see them publicly denouncing the behavior of their colleagues. And I haven't seen that. And I, I understand why. The reason I haven't seen that is when they do, they get fired. Mm -hmm. So again, they're left with the choice of, do I keep my livelihood or do I stand for what I believe in? And unfortunately, the blue line has dictated that they have to protect their livelihood and protect their colleagues. And I just think that is an unfair position to put those people in. 
That's probably one of the first things that will change, though. The police chief of Santa Cruz went on the record saying that, uh, as far as he's concerned, if you see something wrong and you don't do anything about it, you are as culpable of the person who actually carries out the deed. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a great statement and a good place to be. Uh, I think it's it's a couple hundred years too late. <laughs> um, and the reason I say that is most of the police departments are going to be making statements because the conversation has moved not from how do we reform the police, but to how do we defund the police. And now police systems and police institutions and departments are going to have to find a way to to fight for their institution. And I don't know if they're going to win that fight. Uh, I got to ask you one more thing because it comes up in this discussion. And that yep. is the looting. I've, mm-hmm. uh, I've heard two separate interpretations of what went on. One of them is you had peaceful protesters who were infiltrated by the anarchists and the anarchists did the looting. Another interpretation says, no, the looting is not a bug. It's a feature. That's the only way to get attention. Hmm. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, I think it's much more nuanced than a dichotomy. And so I'll try to explain it. Uh, But to explain, I need to provide some context. That context being, considering the history and the oppression that has taken place in this country towards indigenous people, native people, and black folks, we're talking about land being stolen and ravished from from Native Americans, and the country from there on was built on the backs of slaves, black folks, that they actually have every right to burn this place down, yet they never have and they, they still haven't, which means that they have given this country the grace and the opportunity to do right, and it continues to fail it. And so we should be grateful that they haven't burned this place down because they believe in this country. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say as much. They believe in this country more than most folks who are upset about the looting because they're willing to make sure that the country still exists, that they're willing to fight to make it better. Now, fast forward to today and you say, well, Edwin, they're, they're just ravaging all these places and stores and buildings. It is more likely than not that and at least that's what the stories are telling us, that there's white agitators that are coming in causing this violence. Um, and, and that may be the case. But even if it were black and brown folks, if that were true, the question we'd have to ask is, does that make it violence? Right? Because I want to I wanna disassociate the word violence versus property damage because those are two different things. But when you label something as violence... What's violent is when someone has a knee on someone's neck for over eight minutes and suffocates them to death. Right? What's violent is when you shoot a 14-year-old like Tamir Rice and he can't breathe anymore. That's, that's violence. And no one from those who are describing the looting are, are equating the two uh, because the truth is one is much more severe than the other. Uh, but as far as the property damage, property damage is property damage. And, and I, don't, I don't condone it. I don't like going out there and committing acts of property damage. But the looting that is occurring is actually, again, from law enforcement. And so let's talk about looting quickly. When a police officer has probable cause, and I put that in air quotes, to stop someone in a traffic stop, to arrest someone, and they take their property, 
that individual doesn't get that property back. Even if they're found not guilty. Even if there's no charges. Uh, because there's now part of a crime. And, and I'm talking about a large scale. If someone comes into your house and says you've committed this act and property is taken, folks are not getting that property back. And so comparing looting and violence, I, I want to weigh that out because those buildings have insurance. Those buildings will, will be recuperated. The small businesses are going to struggle. And I, I, again, don't condone the acts of, of, of property damage on communities that are already overwhelmingly affected. Um, and I don't condone the, the, the property damage just on face. But as Dr. King said, riots are the voice of the unheard. And so it's, it's a nuanced position. And some people say, well, Edwin, are you saying you're for it or you're against it? And I'm saying this never would have happened if we weren't in a position where police were disproportionately killing black and brown bodies. And so I hate that it's happening. And I actually hope we can change so that it doesn't happen again. Well, I hope people appreciate that looting is not just property destruction. It's job destruction. There are a lot of companies, there are a lot of those stores that are never going to come back. And that's certainly been true in neighborhoods that have suffered this. I mean, there are, there are neighborhoods that are they're still suffering from the, the uh, L.A. riots in, in 1992. Uh, I don't understand why we are so cavalier about the people, many of, the, of whom are on the low end of the pay scale, who will lose their jobs. The corporate types won't lose their jobs, but the people, the sales clerks, the janitors, uh, the maintenance people, they lose their jobs. Many of them won't get them back. Yeah, it's true. Um, and they won't, but I'll tell you, most of those people are also on the street. Not not breaking windows, not um, disturbing property, but they're on the street demanding justice. So what we're seeing is there is a there's a conscious dichotomy that exists that someone says, do I sit in my office or do I continue this work of a pay that is not even living wage to make money for a corporation that will not stand up against the police brutality that I may face if I walk outside? I mean, these are real discussions that people are having. And I think we're seeing that people are falling on the side of, I'm going to put this down so I can go walk in the street. And, and I think that's the point we're at because at, at some point, People are feeling, what good is it to have a job when I'm not even safe walking in the street? Hmm. And so, do elections matter anymore? Absolutely. I mean, who uh, who who takes the leadership to to uh, make these changes that you're talking about? Yeah, it starts on the municipal level, right? It starts municipal, county, statewide. I think those elections are abundantly important. And they take time, but we need elected officials that are not those running because it is the political expediency of their career, but because they've come from the community. Um, and many people may disagree with me, but I so wish that Nikita Oliver had been elected mayor because I think we would have very different outcomes of what's occurring right now. Um, because there is a radical imagination of what a city could look like but the city wasn't prepared for it right they, they called her so many different names um, and now you have the current mayor who is being told by their own city council that they must resign that's that's a bold statement to ask the sitting mayor to resign as an elected official uh, and you have people around the city who would never even imagine saying that because they maybe even voted 
for the current mayor, demanding that she step down because she's not handling the situation of of the First Amendment right to, to freedom of speech and then attacking those people with mace and flashbangs uh, and causing significant harm. So I don't, I don't know where our current situation is going to lie, but I know it's going to leave a path wide open for individuals who, who want to run for office to seek justice. Edwin Lindo is the Associate Director for Critical Teaching and Equity at the University of Washington's Center for Leadership and Innovation in Medical Education. You need a big door for a title that long, Edwin. And uh, <laughs> he also hosts the Praxis Podcast, which is P-R-A-X-I-S, and you can find it just by Googling it. Thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. David, appreciate you. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. 